This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Megan with Stories of Win, and I have the great pleasure of talking today with Dr. Natita Ringrazza-Mitawimana, who is a provost research fellow in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Columbia University. So thanks so much for talking to me today, Natita. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So to get started, um, I'd love, well, to, uh, full disclosure, we do know, know each other a bit. Um, we actually started in graduate school together um, and both got our PhDs at um, the University of California, San Diego. But um, so I've known Natita for a while. I actually remember you even from interviews. (laughs) (laughs) The old days. (laughs) But but I don't actually know everything that I'm going to ask you about today. So I've been looking forward to this. So to start, um, could you tell us just a little bit more about yourself um, your and your um, scientist origin story, if you will. So, you know, just a little about you and how you first got interested in science and the brain in particular. Great. Um, yeah, so I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Very honored um, to be interviewed today. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Thailand and I came to the States for undergrad. So for college, I went to Middlebury College where I did my bachelor degrees in math and neuroscience. And that was my first um, exposure to research, any kind of research, basically. And um, after Middlebury, I wanted to to, so I guess throughout Middlebury, I was also doing some internships um, at UCSD, actually, um, and also at Harvard two summers. And based on that sp- experience, I was really interested in doing more research as a, or exploring research as a career option. Can I ask you, so yeah. how did, if you already majored, you said math and neuroscience yeah, at yeah, Middlebury? Yeah. Right. Um, what first got you interested in those subjects? Like, did you know yeah. going into college you wanted to study those things? Yeah, so that's a great question. I actually, when I was 14, um, my dad had, so there was this like big flood in Thailand and my dad actually um, injured his spinal cord. So there was a big, yeah, like complication. And so he had to undergo spinal cord injury. And at a time, I guess because also there are not a lot of um, neurosurgeons who could do the surgery in Thailand or maybe even now. I was, you know, trying to find out more about the case. We all um, were trying to find out more. And then I actually came across this uh, secondhand uh, book, textbook by Larry Squire. It's just really funny um, in the process of learning more about the different, um, you know, uh, like neurons or things like that, right? And yeah, so everything was fine. The surgery turned out okay. But that was the turning point where I realized that actually, you know, people who are like researchers and scientists actually contribute a lot to everyday people, every, um, everyday's life, right? Like in this mm-hmm. case, somebody has done some really great research on spinal cord injuries and um, surgery procedures. So then my dad could actually um, get better. So that was the first time that I was ever um, kind of exposed to anything mm-hmm. brain or nervous system related. And after that point, I became more and more interested in, in, in neuroscience and research in general. Um, so after that, 
throughout high school in Thailand, mm-hmm. I was trying to find out more information about how to become or how to do research or yeah. what neuroscience was. And at the time, there was actually not a lot that you can do in in Asia or in in Thailand specifically. But also, there were not a lot of PhD programs in neuroscience or mm-hmm. or um, brain science in general. So I thought that the first step would be to try to go somewhere where I can actually experience or 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 be exposed to more neuroscience research. So then I applied to college colleges in in the states. That was kind of my motivation. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And then and then so after Middlebury, I um was really interested in studying cognitive related um cognition cognitive related questions, and I um applied for internship. Positions in the summer of my junior or sophomore and, and junior years to learn more about what I um, want to do, I guess, for grad school. Okay, cool. I think it's cool that, you know, like coming from experience like that with, um, you know, dealing with neurosurgery and your, your father's spinal cord injury that you identified like research in neuroscience as like the path as opposed to just like oh I want to be a neurosurgeon or something that you I don't know I think it's cool that you even like when you were young identified like oh there's a lot of research that goes in before this and that that part is like what I want to do right Uh, and I think a big part of that was because the our or my dad's neurosurgeon kept referring to the fact that mm. more research needs to be done mm. you know because I asked a lot of questions and he just said as a field we didn't know enough to really mm. answer specific questions for sure and I thought that was actually I really appreciated the honesty right of yeah. a neurosurgeon and, and also that was kind of the point where I feel like oh research yeah. is like, great and I cool and I, yeah, <laughs> I mean maybe not <laughs> and an extent, but yeah I, that was kind of yeah so that those like the series of conversations I had with like multiple uh, neurosurgeons and also nurses at the hospital, the local hospital that we were at, um, were kind of yeah really kind of um, inspiring. Okay, yeah, very cool. So then, so it sounds like you you were pretty clear that you were interested in research and you wanted to do a PhD related to neuroscience. And you mentioned doing some internships and right. stuff, and were interested in cognitive questions. Um, so then could you talk a little bit about um, how th- those experiences sort of led you to graduate school and the research questions you pursued in graduate school? Yeah. So one of the events that happened when I, so I stay at the hospital or as a family, we all stay at the hospital when it was 14, 15 with my, with my dad, we stay for months, right? So every day after school, after middle school, I would, I would go to the hospital um, with my mom and then I would, you know, um, run into different patients and I would talk to them. I was really young and I was trying to find out more about the different conditions, right? And one of the, one of the incidents, I guess, or events that really stood out in my memories when I think back about the time was that um, there was a patient who who had memory impairment and so she I would be talking to her over days right but every single time I talked to her it would be like a whole new conversation all over again so she didn't really remember she never she didn't remember me and so every time I would introduce myself she would introduce herself and we would spend the first five minutes or so 
talking about the same exact things, right? Like her career, um, my favorite subject, and and things like that. So I so that was so memory related. Um, questions were what I was originally really interested in, right? But essentially how, what kind of neural mechanisms um, underlie formation of memory and what dynamics make it possible for people to be able to link different memories together and um, and use memories to make decisions in everyday life, right? And also potentially in the future or at a time, I thought I would really like to study what kind of mechanisms are potentially disrupted, right, in um, patients with, with memory problems, for example. And so that's exactly what I was trying to do um, for my internship. So I reached out to um, human neuroscience labs at UCSD and also at Harvard that study decision-making, perception, and also memory um, in, in humans, in human subjects. And so I worked with Dr. John Serenzis at UCSD when I was, uh, when I was a sophomore in the summer. And um, the summer after that, I worked with um, Dr. Dan Schechter at um, Harvard studying memory formation and and um, long-term memory in general and so yeah so that was kind of my what I was really interested at the time and I for grad school I also was really in when I was applying to grad school I was also really curious to see how for example, mathematical principles or modeling framework can also be used to help us better understand neural mechanisms related to perception and also decision making and, and memories in general. So together, that was kind of my plan or stepping stones to try to do more of um, independent research, I guess, in, in grad school. Yeah. Very cool. So then could you tell us a little bit about, about graduate school and your PhD research? So I, I know that you <laughs> you worked with John Serences, right. who you had past um, experience working with, as well as Larry Squire, yeah. whose first book you said you read yeah, when you were... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So the first time... Yeah. So when, when I was um, when it was applying to grad school, I thought, you know, I wanted to work with both human um, healthy populations, but also clinical populations. For example, um, uh, patients with memory impairments, right? Um, and UCSD was perfect <laughs> for me <laughs> because both um, John Serenis and Larry Squire were there. And I was really hoping to basically come up with um, a, a memory task or um, a cognitive task that I can give to both healthy participants or healthy individuals and also memory impaired patients and compare the results together either behaviorally or, or from the modeling point of view to try to understand what what's happening in a healthy brain, right? And what could go wrong when, for example, you have um, bilateral lesion to the hippocampus, for example. So that was really what I had in mind um, going into grad school and I was really happy that that worked out somewhat. So during <laughs> so during rotation, I work with both John and Larry, and I also work with um, Dr. John Wickstead, who also works on similar topic. But his method um, was related to more kind of underlying circuit or using human single unit recordings. Um, anyway, so at UCSD, I basically spent a lot of time designing tasks, right, that would mimic the everyday life decision-making task or memory task that we, we you know, we experience on, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And 
basically I designed a task and then I gave this ta- the same task to uh, healthy individuals while recording their neural activities and also giving the same task to um, patients with memory impairment. So specifically these patients have uh, memory deficits so they cannot form new memories, but they still have access to distant memories and, and some other um, uh, memories as well but basically these patients have bilateral lesions with their medial temporal lobe or, or hippocampus specifically and the idea or the question specifically that I had was trying to identify which aspects of decision making process or information processing in general that are memory in memory dependent versus memory independent oh, and so the idea would be is it possible that if we could figure out um, some aspects that are intact in patients with with with, with lesion patients then is is it possible to then later on potentially figuring out a treatment for example cognitive um, behavioral treatment or therapy that could help them bypass right the impaired functions that they have as induced by the lesions for example but the overall idea right was to try to figure out the underlying mechanisms by using a combination of neuroimaging and also lesion studies in in humans specifically and kind of transitioning out of grad school towards the last year of grad school or my PhD studies I was trying to then bring in more computational methods right now that we collected data to really make use of the data or gain better insights. I thought that using computational models, for example, and specifically building artificial neural networks that can be used to solve the same task that humans perform could maybe help us um, generate testable hypotheses or try to understand the underlying mechanism slightly better as well. So that was kind of yeah my transition to my postdoc where I worked with um, Dr. Terry Zanowski at the Salk, really fully um, developing models that can be used in conjunction with human data to study um, cognitive questions. Yeah, very cool. Before we before we get into that, um, could you maybe just say a little bit more about that task that that you developed and what you ended yeah. up finding um, yeah. from those comparisons of your your patients and the healthy population? Right. So I think one of the most interesting findings I think from our series of studies were. Um, were the fact that actually patients who have memory impairments, pretty severe memory impairments, are actually able to perform a lot of really complex cognitive tasks, um, almost as um, at the same level as um, healthy participants actually. And so based on, so basically we we design um, spatial rotation, so navigation tasks that involves um, rotation of the spatial environment, um, continuous decision-making tasks, probabilistic or statistical learning, right? A series of really... Kind of a battery of yeah, tasks. Yeah, yeah, like complex cognitive tasks that one we original, originally thought or one might think that patients could potentially be impaired on those, right? Because you might think that in order to perform certain tasks really well, you need to have explicit or declarative memory, right, about the environment, for example, that you're navigating. But actually, we found that in our patient population, the behavioral performance um, was almost as, as good as as our healthy controls on 
on almost all of the tasks, right? So one hypothesis coming out of analyzing those data um, was that it's possible that maybe the sensory regions or sensory codes, right, before arriving at the medial temporal lobe, maybe regions prior to medial temporal lobe or hippocampus can already provide enough information for the brain to act on to to generate optimal behavior. So based on so the, basically the idea of sensory neurons or sensory sensory um, sensory neurons doing more than just sensory encoding or sensory processing. It's possible that maybe a lot more than that is could already be happening. And that's why, you know, these patients can can perform really well on really complex tasks without having access to media temporal, like, you know, the, the hippocampus, for example. So based on that findings, I wanted to build models to further explore that possibility and also trying to then look at the underlying circuitry and also single unit dynamics from humans as well. So that was a point where I was trying to look deeper, right, from neuroimaging results and also behavioral um, findings in patients and also in healthy individuals. I wanted to then do a combination of modeling plus looking at the intracranial data from from human subjects as well, kind of after PhD. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So was um, so you mentioned that was one hypothesis, right? Um, but I could imagine, um, you know, another hypothesis. And correct me if this isn't what you were going to think, but it could be more like frontal region, like you know, further down the line, but just kind of like a different pathway than the hippocampus. Sure. Is that another possibility? <laughs> yeah. And so was it something specifically about like the neural data you had collected that led you to think that it was it could actually be early in the process in the like sensory right. coding areas? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that's a great question. And so, I mean, I think that both of them could could be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because sensory regions are the first pass of everything, mm-hmm. right? G- could potentially be gating everything. So it's possible that if the sensory regions are doing this kind of multiplexing um, processing, then you would also have better codes um, kind of to be sent to higher like frontal regions as well. So both could, while both both mm-hmm. could be true, given you know the fact that I was in a perception lab yeah. and, <laughs> and really um, great I guess, um, uh, collaboration with people who work in like vision or visual processing in general, we thought that that could potentially be like a great place to start given how much neuroimaging data we, we do get from, uh, visual areas, for example. So, yeah. So based on kind of that experience, I wanted to first test this idea of, you know, maybe sensory areas, specifically visual cortex, could be more than just, you know, not passively, I guess, but more than just sensory processing could just be doing more of, you know, multiplexing, matching the sensory information onto different contexts by using different underlying neural codes, for example. So to really study that or to 
to um, to know what to look for. You know, in data, I thought that maybe developing some kind of models, right, it would would also help guide guide us what to look for. Yeah. Well, so then those um, that modeling work um, is that what led you to your postdoc? Then you're yeah. saying. So could you talk a little bit about those models and what you did? Right. Right. So post-doc? this was um, COVID time. Um, so <laughs> I graduated. Um, Good time to in, start a modeling yeah, project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it it worked out. So I graduated <laughs> 2020 mm-hmm. at the peak. I think we're at the start um, of of the whole lockdown yeah. <laughs> situation. So I remember joining um, my postdoc lab officially for like a couple of months and then everything or yeah something like that and then um we had to start uh work like to work from home so deciding to work on model development was actually a good idea because i would not i was not able to collect any more data at the time for especially human data yes definitely yeah (laughs) Yeah, so at the time i was trying to collect so i had a an ongoing fmri uh, neuroimaging um, study specifically to try to look at this uh, to test this idea of whether for example um, context signal or or different goal signals could change the rep- underlying representations of the same sensory information or not, right? If you mm-hmm. fix the same sensory information and you only change the goals related to that signal, could do you get the same representations or different representations in, in visual areas, right? So that was one of the first projects that I was trying to um, I was trying to work on in order to to test this 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 theory and uh, we collected like I don't know like two sessions worth of data before everything got shut down <laughs> so <laughs> that cool. was put on hold for a little bit and um, yeah so that so I I joined um, uh, Dr. Terry Zanowski's lab um, at the Salk and during that time so I was with Terry for about two years and during that I mean almost yeah the entire duration was like lockdown (laughs) but I was able to collaborate with other people in the lab um, virtually right Um, but yeah so so basically I was really interested in using the same task that um, I designed for for healthy controls and also mm-hmm. for patients, but now giving this same task to an artificial neural networks that we know exactly right what we put in right so we understand all the architecture of our the architecture of the network and then we can ask okay so if this is the question we're asking the brain or the, our network to solve what are some of the um, computational principles the network could be using to solve this task right so that could potentially help us and and, and also we could do a lot of manipulations that we might not otherwise be able to do, right? For example, we can do some in silico lesion studies in in our networks. For example, we um, can inter- we can disrupt certain connectivity patterns, right, inside our network, and then we can test how critical certain patterns of activities are for memory form- formation or decision making. Okay, so are these like pretty large scale networks, including like the visual you know, visual or early sensory areas as well as like medial temporal lobe, hippocampus, and then you can do these like quote unquote in silico lesions yeah, of like the yeah, hippocampus and yeah. see. So that's what I'm working on right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that, that's a great question. So when during my PhD, I 
was not explicitly working on um, hierarchical modeling, right? I was just really trying to understand how we can set up um, a framework or a platform to combine human data with pretty simple neural networks. So no hierarchy just Got yet. Yeah. Just really trying to set that up. Yeah, and I say that like it's so easy. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, let's build a whole network <laughs> of the brain. Um, but no, no, that, that's, a, that's a great uh, transition. So that's basically after after my postdoc, um, after that, I have been trying to introduce hierarchy into, into my models because as you said, right, to really you know, use models to understand the brain where we know there's a lot of hierarchical computation along the cortical hierarchy. It's really important to consider the possibility of how different connectivity patterns or communication across regions could differentially affect um, information processing on a task. So definitely that's something that I have been for the past few months um, working (laughs) on. Well, great. The perfect (laughs) accidental transition then of... um, So you're now here um, as a provost research fellow at Columbia, um, continuing some of this work. Um, So, yeah, what what brought you to this position? Could you talk a little bit about, yeah, this this position? And because it is like an independent um, position. I understand you have your own like research group. Um, And so. So, yeah, what. Um, what brought you here? What are, are your your goals for your sort of new yeah. research group? Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, towards the end of my postdoc with Terry at the Salk, as I mentioned, I was really, ultimately, I would really like to bring everything together, right? So I study, um, I, I, I looked at behavioral data from patients and from also from healthy controls and also some neuroimaging data, which only tell us about population level um, dynamics, right? So across multiple, a, a large population of neurons, right? So I would really like to one day also understand what's happening at the level of the circuitry and also potentially single neuron dynamics um, that could underlie performance on this same task, right? Or, or cognitive function needed on to solve this same task. So the idea, you know, has been to really fix um, the task that I'm using that I give to my patients and also um, healthy subjects, my model. And also now I would like to to use similar tasks or the same task um, in patients with epilepsy who who come in to the hospital for for to for seizure monitoring right so this is an elective procedure but some um, some epilepsy patients who come into the hospital and they stay for several days so sometimes up to 14 days and they are being their neural activities right um, intracranial activities are being monitored to help identify for potential regions for 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 seizures and for resect um resection later on potentially so i towards the end of my phd i did a short internship at cedar sinai hospital with dr yuli rusishauser who basically his lab collects a lot of intracranial um, recordings from these patients performing a variety of tasks, right? So then you can really isolate single neuron activity as well as um, circuit level dynamics underlying different task performance or, or, or task um, um, requirements, essentially. So, yeah, so I interned there for six months before I moved to Columbia. And um, 
so to to start data collection on this same idea trajectory of things that I have been talking about. Yeah, so we do have an active collaboration with Cedars, where um, we are collecting single neuron and also um, uh, just in general local field potential data from from epilepsy patients performing. Um, you know, like decision-making task. So then... Uh, Is this data from like the hippocampus or... Yeah, yeah. Okay. So because because I'm very interested in, you know, this interaction, yeah. right, between sensory and medial temporal lobe, yeah. right? So the the main focus on um, that, that I have on this project is essentially looking at, so we do have access to um, IT neurons. Okay. It's Very not cool. primary, right, visual cortex, but it's still sensory. It's still considered sensory. Yeah, so I'm really interested in looking at the interaction or the d- dynamics interplay between IT and hippocampus. And also, we also have um, access to recordings from frontal areas as well. So, you know, what you mentioned, about the alternative hypothesis could potentially be tested here as well. But yeah, so that was what I wanted to kind of uh, get work on, right? Um, and combine with modeling. So that was my transition from postdoc, from more um, theory postdoc out um, to, to, to my independent research program. And so currently at Columbia, essentially doing this high, um, I'm really interested in work combining human intracranial recordings or insights we can learn from, from that type of data with hierarchical modeling to really understand this interplay between hierarchical, di- different neural codes along the cortical hierarchy, how they work together, and can one trigger one neural code or one type of computational principle trigger a different code or, or how they how different neural codes coexist, right, to or, or complement each other to help us um, make complex decision, um, especially in dynamic environments, for example, when, when things change over time. So that's the goal, the big picture goal of my research program at Columbia. Very cool. So is the idea because, uh, you know, from what I understand of these ECOG um, experiments and, and data sets, you know, you're, since this is, these are human patients you're working right. with, as you said, these epilepsy patients who are right. sitting in their hospital beds, you know, you're, you're limited. You can't just record anywhere that you want you're limited to like where the doctors are already recording from um so is the idea like you know to kind of compare do the modeling kind of figure out what you might be looking for and identify kind of signatures of these like different codes and then kind of compare that to the ecog data that you do have access to and see if that kind of matches you know what your models are telling you is that kind of right. a fair summary or <laughs> yeah 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 definitely and 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 so i think specifically right as you mentioned because there are more limitations there are a lot more limitations um that come with the data right so but it's also very it's a very unique opportunity to be able to even you know look at oh yeah activities. I mean, as a right. sensory physiologist <laughs> yeah. who works with mice that being able to look at single right. neuron definitely data in humans is incredible that's right. the dream so it's, it's, yeah so it's very exciting and, and I think again you know there are a lot of limitations and one way to work around that or to really you know maximize right what we can get with the kind of insight the, the insights we can get out of this this types of data is to to 
I think is to present the same tasks that we are going to present to patients to our models, right? And then really use the models to figure out, for example, potential solutions, right? We were using our models as a way, as as a way to explore solution space. What are some possible ways in which this task can be solved, right? If you treat a decision-making task or a perceptual um, task as a mathematical question, right? What are some of the algorithms, right? That that a model or a brain would could use to solve this task and and optimize behavior, for example, right? So we are trying to use our model, right? So we we are developing models. So so in in parallel to analyzing data from humans, we are also developing models to get better models that can give us better insights, right? Um, so we can train our models to perform the same task that we are giving our patients, and essentially right. so we they're can still able to do these tasks. Exactly. You know, you're not just recording; you're, you're recording from them while they're doing these tasks right. that you're also then like in silico giving to your models. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But what we can do with the models then, right after the models perform the task, we can then dissect the models and we can study. You know, what, for example, what are the um, what are the what are some of the critical computations that are needed, absolutely needed to perform a certain task, right? And so we can come up with, for example, we can come up with a series of testable hypotheses and some of them we're not going to be able to test given the data limitation, right? And so I think very long-term plan, I think would actually be to do more of the cross-species analysis as well, because by using this type of model, we'll be able to generate a lot of different hypotheses, right? Um, and some of the hypotheses, as I mentioned, we will not be able to test using human ECOG and, and single unit data, but using rodents or um, macaque data, we actually will be able to test more hypotheses, right? So I think in the long run, um, I would also like to be able to present the same task, you know, work with collaborators and present similar tasks, right, to um, um, monkeys or, or, or mice, right, to and then to test some of the hypotheses that we are not able to test in humans as well. And, and, and it would be really interesting as well to see if, for example, right, the sensory neurons in, in IT cortex of humans um, and ITC cortex of, of monkeys are behave similarly under the same contextual information processing, for example. But yeah, so that's overall like trying to build models that can help us better link across different data sets and also potentially across species as well. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. No, that's that all sounds super exciting. And yeah, I I love how, you know, you you're kind of hitting all the like areas <laughs> of neuroscience in your program, right? Like you have Thank the, you. you know, the modeling and the, you know, cognitive aspect working with patients, but also looking at then zooming all the way down to the level of individual neurons. So that's super exciting. Um, cool. Well, I think um, that gives us a great picture of sort of, you know, your, your scientific trajectory so far. Um, 
sounds like a lot of highlights and, you know, successes <laughs> and along the way. But, you know, we know that, um, you know, there all there can also be hard parts in between probably that don't always make it onto the CV. So and in our interviews, we also like to discuss some of those, <laughs> yeah. those other things that don't make it onto the CV. So if you're willing to share, I'd love to talk about just like a challenge or a series of challenges that you've encountered at any point in your like training or career thus far and maybe how you've sort of dealt with those or um, overcome them if you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think as you can tell, there are a lot of people who have helped me along the way, all these really great mentors who, you know, basically took a chance on me, right? Like I had this really... Um, you know, crazy idea of linking all these different things, right? And um, I didn't really have any experience going into grad school. And yeah, so I think for me, I was really lucky to be able to, you know, have very unique opportunities to work with people who have, who are very kind and who are willing to let me you know, try running experiments in, in their labs, right? So I worked with multiple people at, at UCSD, including, you know, John Serensis and Larry Squire. And they were very kind in in helping me setting up this collaboration between their labs for the first time. And so I was really lucky that they were, you know, that I, I had really great mentors during my PhD and especially I think this yeah and and for doing my postdoc as well right so um, Terry was also very open to me reaching out to um, Dr. Yuli Rizishauser, who who um, is who who is um, an expert on human single unit recording. So I think, you know, my mentors were very open minded, right, and they were really supportive in me trying um, new opportunity. Like, look, they helped me look for opportunities that will help me identify what I would like to to pursue for my career. And I thought that was really helpful for me, especially because I, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience when I started grad school. I actually didn't have really any experience I when I started <laughs> Is that grad true school. Though? You mentioned these like internships I, well, you did. Yeah, and... <laughs> but I, I mean, it was it was I think it was more the internships that I did before I started grad school was more helpful in confirming that I wanted to go okay, to grad sure. school. Yeah. The yeah, so I yeah. And and basically during the first two years of grad school, I learned how to read scientific papers. Mm -hmm. I learned how to write, I guess, papers. Mm -hmm. I learned, you know, different things that I did not have any experience with before. And I went to liberal art college, Mm -hmm. right? So I, yeah, so I didn't have a lot of experience with with research. So most of your research were probably shorter and more not necessarily deep like no, to the point of yeah, yeah reading the literature not. And right writing. right yeah. and and so i i think the biggest challenge in grad school was the first couple of years when we had you know you remember we had to take classes where we had to read papers and that was really difficult and so having mentors who were very understanding and very patient you know they understood they they understood that it would take me longer to for example like design an experiment because i also had to spend extra time reading papers or working on assignments right for class so that was really helpful like having really understanding um, people in your corner essentially and um, so that was my biggest 
things, right? So help having people who who understand where, what my limitations are, or what I would like to work on, right? To imp- what what kind of skill sets I um I would like to work on, and they help me refine those um skill sets, and I'd also identifying collaborators or resources, right? So. Um, John and John and Larry, for example, recommended that maybe Terry could be a good person to talk to if I wanted to, you know, start thinking about modeling, right? And so they also identify other um, colleagues or collaborators of theirs that were willing to talk to me to help me figure out what what I should what I should be thinking about if I want to, for example, switch field and do more computational work right after more experimental work during PhD. So that was really great. And I think that made a really big difference in my, in my career. And I guess apart from that, if we were to like go back in time when I was in Thailand, I was, you know, trying to look up people who are like neuroscientists quote unquote and I actually didn't I couldn't find anybody who is from um, you know who's like a woman from Southeast Asia for example and even now I don't think I know many people right so I was there were a lot of doubts right like I wasn't my family in Thailand or in the world right Mm -hmm. so in Thailand we did not not have any right so we not we did neuroscience or scientist as a career was not really a thing in Thailand and I mean even though now there are a lot more people who are doing research right and who yeah so but back you know 15 years ago I couldn't find anybody you know I I I tried to find somebody in Thailand that I could maybe try to reach out and talk to I couldn't find anybody and when I was trying to you know look outside Thailand I also actually could not find anybody who basically looked like me and so my family wasn't really sure that this is something <laughs> that was uh, wise yeah. Um, but yeah so they they were also very kind of open-minded and they thought you know maybe you should try and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out at least you know so I think that was a you know a lot of questions right like I was wondering if this is a viable career path because I couldn't find somebody who had gone through it at the time. So I think after, so after coming to college, I um, started to um, get involved with more uh, with outreach programs, right? Where you actually have people, you know, mentors, and also um, you have opportunity to interact with other people who are also underrepresented and hear about different additional, I guess, um, resources that you can um, that you can get in order to find out more about science or, or, or neuroscience as a career. So I think a lot of my cha- a lot of the challenges that I um, encountered were related to more of where I'm coming from, right? And how, yeah, yeah. And 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 I I think by and large, I think having really great supporting systems and and mentors 
really helped me overcome the challenges. And even now at Columbia, I have a lot of people, you know, like next door. Um, Dr. Josh Jacobs always like checks in on me. He's very, very, yeah, <laughs> he's very yeah. kind. And there are a lot of people in the department and also at Columbia um, as a whole, like in general, people are very kind and they reach out to me. They are trying to see if I need additional resources and I just want to chat and learn more about, you know, this career trajectory right so i think i think it's it's been really great but i also would really like um to have more representation in science for sure and um so i i have been part of a lot of different um outreach and also diversity efforts especially in thailand really to try to encourage you know young females in thailand who might be interested in research and higher education in general and just to let them know that it can be done and you know there are resources that will help them kind of um, achieve their goals yeah so i've been involved with a lot of that especially in thailand yeah oh that's amazing yeah because it sounds like yeah i mean as you said you've it sounds like you've had really supportive people and you know mentors as well as your family and you know also credit you for like being gung-ho and like I'm both in terms of like I'm going to pursue this career as well as like at each specific stage you you talked about like in your training of I may not have the skill set yet to do this thing but I'm going to try and like acquire the skills together you know so so all of those things kind of converged and I think have it seems like have gotten to where you are which is a very good place despite the fact of not having you know like representation but obviously for every young woman growing up in Thailand they yeah. not, may not have all of those things right. and so I think that's super cool that now you know you're trying to like <laughs> show them <laughs> or yeah hope, I mean um, yeah I, this is something we hear all the time from like women we talk to and right. you know representation does matter and right. you know we know that I think most of us know that intuitively but it is um it does have very concrete effects on people and, yeah um did that like once you you said you started getting involved in more um like during your training involved in more programs um like outreach programs did that help you like were you able to find more people that way to kind of like look up to or yeah or still? yeah right right so the fir- the very first outreach program that I did was actually when I was a sophomore in college because at that point I kind of yeah so so I wanted I, I saw some opportunities to actually form a small team and then from of of, of people in the states both uh, Thai students and also you know uh people from from universities in in the states who were interested in bringing some of the resources uh, you know outside the outside the states to more underrepresented communities and so we actually we were able to acquire some funding and we went back to thailand we spent the whole summer i think planning some curriculum and you know uh, hands-on experiments for uh, middle school and high school students right because in in our curriculum in thailand things are slightly different now so things are better curriculums is 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 more um uh you know experiment oriented but back in the days right we only really had lectures and so 
growing up in Thailand, I didn't really have an idea of what a science, what an actual scientific experiment would look like, and what that might entail. Like, how would one even start thinking about? designing an experiment how to identify research questions right and how to even find out what is what has been discovered right and what remains unknown right so i think having access to that information was also really helpful for me when i came to the state so i wanted so as a team we went back to thailand and we basically did um uh, we put together a science uh, boot camp for middle schoolers and high schoolers so we, we did some basic experiments with them and we talked about you know all these opportunities um especially for career options that are out there right that People in Thailand might not really talk a lot about. For example, you know, being a scientist is something that people usually don't talk about. Doesn't get talked about at all, right? So that was the first time really trying to bring that what I learned in the states back to Thailand, and we had really great feedback. You know, when we followed, we follow up with students who. Participated in that program, they are now actually some of them are actually in PhD programs oh and, gosh, and whatnot. Amazing. So <laughs> it was it was really great um, to to do that. And then after that summer, I continued to be part of different kinds of um, outreach programs, um, both in Thailand and also here. So at UCSD, I also served on the diversity committee, right, where we actually read. Um, applicant uh, applications from uh, underrepresented populations and to try to basically identify, for example, it's possible that right, um, an applicant didn't have an opportunity to, to do research because of some circumstances right, that were not under their control. So I think being part of, of um, a committee like that was also really helpful to really bring um, lights to applicants who are definitely deserved to be going to grad school but might not have all the you know different pieces that they might need to put together an application um so yeah i think through that whole process right i also got to meet people who are very inspiring people who have done this kind of work right outreach and service back to the community for years right so through that process i get to meet more mentors that are not my academic mentors right and as a build network of um of, of, of scientists and also to give back and also connect with younger generation of future scientists. So it was really great to be in, to be able to be in that position where I get to connect with people who have more experience, right. Um, doing this kind of work, but also the, the next generation um, of scientists. Yeah. Are you guys still doing these like boot camps in Thailand? And yeah. Stuff so, I mean, you know, there are a lot of different, um, like variants of the, of this of course, kind of, yeah. of this kind of, um, um, programs but yes so there are a lot of um, programs that are still ongoing in Thailand and I actually want to highlight a new um, a new um, effort that I just started being part of this year so it's called letter to pre-scientists so when I was in Thailand I really wished that you know I would be able to like write a letter to like a real scientist and then get their response back and just you know learn more about them right like a personal letter and um Obviously, that was not possible. And so last year, I found out that there's exactly that effort being done in the States. So it's called LPS or Letter to Pre-Scientists. So essentially, 
um, scientists, right, uh, grad student, postdoc, and also faculty can sign up to to write to be a pen pal and write a letter to one student, right, um, in like middle school or high school who's really interested in finding out more about research in general or just you know higher education, and so um, yeah, so I'm actually working on my very first letter to uh, <laughs> to my pen pal right pen now. Pal? <laughs> um, so I actually, so I actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who oh, that yeah, is. That's fair. <laughs> um, but um, I'm actually really excited to see what kind of response I would get because I have no yeah. idea, right? I just I just remember the feeling that I really wanted, wanted to that. have that yeah. opportunity when I was young, and I knew what I wanted to say to like my scientists at the time. So I'm really curious to see oh. what my you know pen pal would say to me. But um, yeah, I'm actually actively working on my very first letter oh, to be sent so next exciting. week. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think that you know there are all these different things we could do to and it could it could be very small efforts on our parts but it could make a big difference right um in kind of students career or future so yeah highly you know encouraging people to you know look out for opportunities to maybe give back and and help out right um people from from underrepresented communities for sure. Oh, I love that. I think that's a, a lovely note to end on. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> but um, I do want to ask, we, we like to end, like officially end with a okay. more get to know you question. I'll give okay. you two options and you okay. can choose. One is like, what's your sort of morning routine? <laughs> um, <laughs> just to you know, get in the mood for the day. Or the second choice is if you weren't a neuroscientist, what would you be doing? Okay. I will go with the first one. Okay because I did exactly that this morning so it's easy for me okay, to remember you where, yeah. <laughs> my morning routine so my I have um, I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me mm-hmm. she is in medical school in Thailand and because of the 11 hour difference my morning is her like nighttime <laughs> so when I wake up the first thing I usually do is to talk to her or check Aww. her sometimes she's not available to really talk on the phone but she would leave videos or you know voicemails and messages of all the cases she got to work oh, wow. on actually she's a last year um, medical student so she got to you know do all this cool um, things I guess and, and so yeah so in the morning I would you know check messages from her and without fail every single day that's something new something interesting um, <laughs> about her day and sometimes I would also you know video chat with her or talk to her on the phone to yeah so that's that's my that's such that's a nice my, way to start um, the day <laughs> that, yeah that's, that's, that's actually and you know I, I think in, in theory I would like to do that while you know like talk to my sister while I'm walking to the gym because it's so <laughs> it's so close to um to my apartment but that has not been happening as much as I would like um, that, but that's, that's the ideal scenario right like yeah, yeah. checking in on her while like going to the gym sure, sure. but um, yeah that has not been happening too, too, too much but yeah, that's my. You're giving yep. your sister her full, your full undivided attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's but that's yeah. great. That's that sounds like a great morning routine. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been so fun thank to you. catch up with you and hear more about your your life and science and trajectory. So thanks so much for chatting with me. And thank you, Megan. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.